Talk and Power, your motorsport and motoring radio show. Now on 88.5 FM, the valley comes alive. And podcasting across iTunes and talkandpower.com.au. Okay, episode 114 of the Talk and Power podcast. We have another special guest on the episode this week, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce Paul Blank. Paul, thanks for joining us on the podcast tonight. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and join in. Well, yeah, look, welcome along. And uh, like I said in my notes here, we've had many guests on the podcast that are expert in their respective fields, but... Tell us a bit about yourself and how you became one of Perth's leading classic car experts. Um, I guess it really came from a fanaticism about all things cars since I was a baby. <laughs> um, and yeah, my interest has been very broad from classic cars to competition cars to things about new cars, everything car-wise. And uh, I've just really focused on that sort of thing for my whole life. And, and I guess my strongest interest has become in the classic car field. Um, and that's the field I work in these days. You make a nine to five living with cars these days, so that's that's yeah. that's that's um, a lot of us strive to that. And uh, <laughs> I take my hat off to you for being able to do that. So these days, uh, part of your your job is is a classic car broker. Um, I know, I, even though we've never met before, a lot of people have spoken to me about you. So you you come highly recommended. So clearly, you're an enthusiast that um that that people trust and respect. How do you go about finding a home for a classic car? Um, it's an unusual process, I guess, compared to where somebody might just list a car online or something like that to advertise an everyday car. Um, I've got a lot of contacts and clients who like particular sorts of cars or a particular model of car that they're seeking. Um, and even if I'm not sure that there's a particular person for a specific car, my um, list of contacts is pretty broad in the classic car world and I put the word out there for something that has become available and usually there's somebody who likes to put their hand up for it, not always. Mm. Um, and sometimes I have to spread the field fairly widely. I've got contacts all around Australia, some overseas and sometimes cars move beyond our state border. Yep, yep, yeah, okay. It must be uh, quite a task, and, and obviously it's not something that you can do just overnight. You've got to build up a, a repertoire of, of, of customers, I guess, and, yeah. and also buyers and sellers as well. Yeah, very much. But because I've always been involved in the classic car world, whether that's through areas that are really nothing to do with buying and selling um, or from being a broker, um, I do have a lot of contacts and, mm. and people with also all different interests in the classic car world. So that makes makes the whole thing work. Yeah, yep, yep. In the past, I've read a comment from yourself. You say when it comes to buying or selling a classic car that the, you should do your research. And often enough, you, you, you often say, go back to the auctions and look at auction results. Yeah. Do you think that we're moving to a world, because we're seeing you know, the Shannon's auctions come along and Lloyd's, and they, they're heavily publicised now, auctions. It seems to be the marketplace. Do you think we're moving to a world where that's where we're only going to see classic um, I, cars? I don't think so. I think in this um, COVID period, there's been a, a rush of new uh, businesses which are online auction based. 
uh, which are not the big names that we know, like some that you've mentioned, and they're taking the opportunity while people are tied up at home um, and some are Australian, some are overseas that are operating in Australia, but we've seen several that have come up in the recent period um, and they're spending big to get a lot of publicity. They're really reaching out through Facebook, uh, through the internet. Um, some of them will survive, some won't. Um, some of them operate very well and some don't. Um, but equally the same with the, the traditional auction world. There are some very good players and some not so... Mm. Um, how should I say, some that don't play the game by the best rules. Yep, yep. Um, some that uh, even make their own rules. <laughs> yes, and ultimately those ones won't survive because they won't get the support from people long term. Yeah. Um, so, but uh, a lot of people are not comfortable with the idea of the auction world. Uh, they really want to see and poke and prod and drive and and make their own evaluation of a car which they might not be able to do in an auction situation. So mm -hmm. um, I, I think the auction world is probably strengthening a bit, but um, it certainly won't become the, the primary way of selling a classic car. Yeah, okay. Well, fair enough. I've just seen that there's a, there's a massive focus, but you're probably right. I mean, it's, it's this COVID world that we're living in where there's a, there's a demand to, you can't go anywhere. So there's a demand for, for vehicles and, and perhaps that's the easier way in, in purchasing a vehicle, but not necessarily the, the best way. Yeah, I think that's, that's true. And you mentioned before where I say uh, people should do their homework um, by looking at auction results. Um, there's a, a phenomenon that's pretty strong at the moment of people asking impossibly high prices for vehicles. Mm -hmm and comparing theirs to something that they might see online and therefore putting a higher price and then the next person puts a higher price um, and they're unrealistic and nobody really pays the high prices, the crazy high prices very often because you, where you can buy the same car for a realistic price, why would you? Mm -hmm. um, and in that case, the sellers need to do their homework and really see what's on the market because if you can buy the same car for half the price, why would somebody pay the high price? Well, every seller anticipates that their car is the best one there is and therefore should get the highest price. Every buyer, on the other hand, wants to pay the lowest price. And they can look at auction results from reputable auction companies. The not reputable ones don't publish their results, but the reputable ones do. And they can find that information online pretty readily and see what real selling prices are, which at the moment, in many cases, are miles from asking prices. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, that's good to know. Hey, Paul, let's just take a step back. This is what you're doing now, but let's just take a step back. You have a Bachelor of the Arts in Industrial and Product Design. Um, that's that got you started in auto imagination. I actually that's remember right. that story. Yeah. Subiaco, correct? Correct. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, I, I used to hang out there as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> he had a, he had a uh, well, it was um, just near your brother's workshop. Yeah, yeah, but it was Lane's go kart. I used to go there oh, just right. for Lane's go kart. <laughs> <laughs> but tell us a bit about that store. Um, I developed a design to make Range Rovers into convertibles, mm. um, which was quite a comprehensive conversion where a whole back was put on them with a car-type boot lid and all that sort of thing. Um, and I could see that there was a good market for that um, and developed the business out of that. 
But it was much the same time that companies like AMG and Zender, companies like that were in, in Europe producing specialist body kits and alloy wheels and interior upgrades and things like that. So I ended up with agencies for a lot of those products, um, Momo, Recaro, um, that, all, all of those sorts of good quality brands. Yeah. Um, and probably, well, definitely the majority of the work that I did with Auto Imagination was supply of those sorts of accessories, fitting of those. Um, built uh, 14 of the Range Rover convertibles mm -hmm. over that period. But that was pretty major work compared to putting a body kit onto a car or something like that. Yeah. It, was, it was pretty groundbreaking for its time because in, in Perth there was no one offering those sorts of services for that type of car. Yeah. It was... Um, yeah. Well, it was a big gamble, really. <laughs> boomerang convertible cars, <laughs> not far from me. Was doing, they, they were doing Beetles and a lot of the popular sorts of cars, but I aimed really at the other end of the market. The other end of the yeah, I did a correct. few BMW convertibles as well as Range Rovers and some fairly comprehensive conversions on cars with one-off body kits and some, some major transformations of cars as well. And this was predating CNC gear, so... Very yeah. much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For those watching the YouTube channel, or if you're listening to us on, on as a podcast, go back and, and watch the YouTube channel. You'll see an image of the of the car that we're, we're talking about here on, on the video. So it is a magnificent car. I must say, when I was doing my research, I saw it. I saw it, and uh, I, I, was, I was quite impressed. And I do remember seeing a few of those around yeah. back in the day. I don't... I think I've seen one recently, however. It's a long time since I've seen one. Yeah, yeah. It's stored away, I hope. Speaking of getting stored away, Paul, um, I'm curious to discuss your role with the federal government as an approved valuer for the Cultural Gifts Program and ex just explain to our listeners how important this role is in preserving and keeping some of Australia's rarest cars here on shore. Well, the Cultural Gifts Program was created quite a long time ago as a system for institutions, mostly museums and art galleries, to increase their collections without having to purchase items. So somebody can donate an object, and mostly what I do is cars and car related, uh, they can donate, say, a car to a, a car museum and have a tax deduction for the full value of that vehicle, plus the value of the two valuations that have to be done. They can spread that um, tax deduction across several years or do it in one year, whatever suits them. Um, and it's a very effective way that institutions can increase their collections. There's three of us in Australia who are approved by the federal government to do valuations of or generally transport is what I mm. cover mine in. It can be model cars or real cars, but mostly it's, it's whole cars. Um, and certainly some interesting things have gone through I've been doing it for quite, a, I think, since 1999. Um, yeah, some really interesting stuff comes up and some brilliant things have been donated to museums around the country. Mm. But tell us the importance of that, that, that role itself. In, in, I don't think many people understand the importance in trying to preserve and keep cars here in Australia where people can still see them or go to a museum and still view them. Yeah, it is important to our history and I think people have a better understanding of that these days than maybe they did... 25 years ago mm. or, or beyond that. Um, there's a lot of vehicles that do have significance to our history um, and significance in all different ways, whether, whether they're a competition car that won 
a lot of events or a car that was built locally or had a lot of other local important significance, those cars shouldn't be exported. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do, do the Brabham, any of the Brabham cars, are, are they still in Australia? Uh, many are. Um, in his time, Brabham was the biggest manufacturer of racing cars. Um, so I don't know what the numbers were, but it's probably a couple of thousand race cars they built. Yeah. Um, and I know there's many hundreds of them still in Australia. Um, Championship winning? Uh, uh, um, I don't know. There may be, although his factory was actually in England. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but I know there's a lot of Brabham cars in Australia. Even quite a few in Western Australia. Hmm. I think there's one sitting in the museum in Canberra, isn't there? From memory, uh, um, very likely. Uh, as you, walk, it's one of the display pieces. It's quite funny to see you walking well, into the did, foyer. Did win a champ, you know, world well, three three yeah. world championships, <laughs> and, and the only person ever to win a world championship in a car of his own construction. construction. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah see, I, I see that as having cultural significance. <laughs> it might be just me, but absolutely. Huge, huge. <laughs> Hey, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be back with more from Paul Blank right after this. Okay, Talking Power Podcast episode 114 and we're here with Paul Blank and it's great to have him along. Paul, it's um, enjoying this discussion. We were just talking about your work with the federal government, but you've done a bit also with the um, with the state government as well in terms of uh, Department of Transport and um, under the unique and historic category of concessional licensing. For the uninitiated, tell us a little bit about 404. Right, Code 404 is a concession, one of about 40 different concessions there are for, that the uh, Department of Transport handles for, for all different kinds of purposes, but it was created in 1964 for vintage and veteran cars, originally for veteran and then it got expanded and um, now it's for vehicles up to 25 years old and sort of more than 25 years old in a, a rolling 25 year limit. Um, the unique and historic category allows for newer vehicles but they really have to meet quite stringent um, requirements of being unique or historic or both. Um, and there's only a few vehicles on that, but I was involved with setting that up probably about 25 years ago. Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting, and we, we do hear, like, I mean, I hear on occasions even some new cars coming through on 404, a Ferrari of a particular builder had yeah. special trim in the seats or whatever it may be. Yeah. It needs, needs to be more than just a sort of decorational thing that makes the car special. <laughs> You get him later on, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. But the, one of the vehicles we discussed when this was being developed was Ferrari F40. Yep. So they were only made left-hand drive. They were newer than 25 years old. They had perspex windows. They don't have enough ground clearance for the sort of regulations we have in Western Australia. And using that as an example is how this, this whole thing was developed. So, yes, a Bugatti Veyron would be a perfect car for that. Yeah, yep. While we're talking 404, it's very important to discuss um, the importance of car clubs and what they play in, in, in implementing, I guess, 404 as well. Can you explain, like, we, we view car clubs as just a, a social thing, and, and, and they are, but tell us a little bit more about the importance and what they play in the 404. 
Well, you're right that the social element of car clubs is a, a very important aspect of what they are, but the Department of Transport understands the importance of clubs as far as disseminating information to people who have cars of interest, um, of um, not having any control over members, because clubs generally don't, um, but to be able to make sure that people have a good understanding of what the regulations are for Code 404 and also the new Code C4C. Um, and they, in fact, Department of Transport makes it a, a requirement that people are a member of a car club mm -hmm. to be able to access either of those concessions. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell us a bit. You're talking of car clubs. You sit, you, you, you sit in the Council of Motoring Car Clubs. Tell us a bit about your work there. Um, the Council of Motoring Clubs represents, I think it's 110 different clubs at the moment. Um, I'm not presently on the committee. I'm co-opted onto the committee um, for looking after aspects of Code 404 concession, um, although for off and on for most of the last of the probably four decades I've been on the committee in different uh, capacities. So the, the CMC represents the interests of different clubs. Um, and runs the annual Classic Car Show, which is a very big event. The last five years that's been held at Ascot Racecourse, mm. with about a 1,000 cars there. Um, it's a magnificent show, I must say. Yeah. It is very impressive. Mm. Um, but uh, at, at the moment, there's a lot of work going into the concessional side of things. The uh, With uh, C4C coming mm -hmm. on board uh, 16th of April, that started operation. Yep. Um, and many of the clubs in the CMC are taking that on. Some are not, but there's no obligation to. Mm. Um, and we're also in negotiations with the Department of Transport about some changes that they want to make to the existing Code 404. Yep. Um, that'll be... I think there's a lot of negotiation to be done there until that's resolved. Can I ask a question without notice? We can cut it out if you want. Is the stamp duty part of that? Um, there's legislation which makes the stamp duty not applicable to Code 404, mm -hmm. but the uh, department has designed C4C in a different way, and the legislation, well, there's no legislation covering that, so C4C does have stamp duty. Mm, yeah, yeah, okay. No, I don't have a problem with that. I figure if you can afford the car, <laughs> you can afford the three percent. <laughs> We'll leave that one alone. Yeah, I, for the, yeah there's, there's... We've covered this before, haven't we? And it went on for about half an hour. I yeah, and I think it all got edited out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Pretty much did. Yes. And I remember there's some very upset people, but hey, hey. You know, what, what, what can you do? But, uh, and I'm actually going to take the next question for this one, because yes. um, discussing motoring, motoring clubs, Paul, um, shifting back... They're a classic rally, like Paul. We all recall it. I remember my, actually my dad, who wasn't really a car person, him and his mate entered a '36 Chev. All right. And I was—I won't say how young I was, because that'll embarrass everybody here. But I remember being absolutely enthralled, coming to the classic rally, watching them throw the '36 Chev round car parks, etc., etc. Um, tell us a bit about that i mean it was all the way back in 1992 well, yes it start, started in 92 yeah. and it, it came about because it was a new form of motorsport which was taking off around the world and i'd been lucky enough to participate in the grand prix rally which was the first of this kind of event in australia and that ran from melbourne to the grand prix being held in adelaide it was five days of competition 
driving events interspersed with navigation tests and a strong social element to it. Um, it was a pretty big deal, that event. In fact, uh, Sterling Moss was in it and Fangio presented the awards and fabulously exotic cars in there. And yeah. it really captured the imagination of the exotic car owners of Australia. So from vintage cars through to current model Lamborghinis and things, there was a fantastic mix of cars. And fortunately, I was able to compete. I had an Alpha Montreal, which was the V8 engine Alpha. Sent it over east, did that rally, had a fantastically good time and thought, somebody's got to do something like that in Western Australia. And by the end of it, I thought, well, why don't I put my hand up and put an event like that together? So it was, took a lot more work than I probably anticipated <laughs> yeah. originally. Um, but it was the second of that kind of event in Australia. Um, and it ran for 12 years. Um, and I made sure that the, the formula of making it a very high profile event, so having lots of media involvement, celebrity drivers, all that sort of thing, to keep it high profile for the competitors and also for the event itself, for the strength of the event itself. Yeah. And, and it worked fantastically. Now, I said, I have very fond memories of it. I think, I mean, the next question was, who were some of the famous celebs that were came and participated? I, for one, remember Eric Banner coming over at one yes. point, um, having a chat to Eric Banner, you know, I think in a car park in Mandra. <laughs> and one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Um, also, I remember sitting, having a cup of tea with Ross Duncan more than once at a classic rally, like... Who yeah. some other interesting people who have come well, over for these ones? Um, we had some people both from the sort of um, movie and media and celebrity world like, like Banner, who you mentioned. Um, a lot of famous drivers. Jack Brabham was in it twice. Sir Jack competed two different years. Um, Rosemary Smith, who was the first woman to win a Round of the World Rally Championship. She came out from Ireland and competed twice in the event. Peter Brock was in it. Uh, John Goss, the Bathurst winner. Every year there was somebody who was a big name um, there, and sometimes more than one. Yeah. Um, and people, some like Ross Dunkerton, probably competed five or six times in it. Yeah, excellent. It is. A, it was a, I, I do. I have really fond memories of it as well. And uh, I mean, it's the, the early nineties for me was a formative year for me. I just finished high school in ninety two. And you know you you just get your license, and you know this was really a magnificent event. I really enjoyed it as well. Yeah, uh, we had big crowds to all the the sort of public spectator events, thousands of people at some of them. And as one year we had, I think, 160 cars was the most we had competing in it. And I look back today, and I just can't fathom how we got the logistics of it to work, but we did. So there'd be several different competition events at different venues running at one time as the cars progressed through them. Yeah. The navigation tests in between, so the presentation dinners were as big as 500 people at the dinners. But it was great fun, even from the doing the hard work perspective of it. Yeah, that would have, I can imagine that would have taken up a fair amount of time organising something oh, like that. A then. huge amount of time. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, I can imagine. Funnily enough, the city of Joondalup have been talking about uh, conducting a classic road race in, in a similar description. I guess my question to you is, what are some of the challenges that those guys would face now that you, they didn't have to worry about in the 90s? Um, it's really regulations, um, that where there'll be council regulations, state government regulations, insurance regulations and things which are 
just so much stricter these days. Mm -hmm. So I believe uh, Joondalup's looking at doing around the Houses event, which is a sort of historic street racing reenactment, which is usually done as regularity. So it's against your own time that you set rather than racing against each other. Mm -hmm. Um, But compared to the early days of even that kind of event, that they'll have to have such rigorous safety measures, both in the planning and in the production of it, um, but it's still possible to do. The Vintage mm-hmm. Sports Car Club runs an event like that in Albany. In fact, that's in a couple of weeks' time. They yeah, do okay. one at Northam, so mm. they're a lot of fun. They are, they are. I'm just looking at the time here. We'll take another, we'll take another break. Sorry, Todd, I, have I cut you off? No, no, so, no, you're fine. <laughs> we'll just, we, we'll take a break here and uh, we'll be back with more from Paul Blank right after this. Welcome back to the Talk and Power podcast, episode 114, and we are joined with, in the studio, Paul Blank. Paul, thanks for joining us. And I forgot to mention, we have Todd Brinkworth and Simon Gonzo Travellini. It's all right. We, we well, know we're not important. And my, and yeah, we, we know that you don't really <laughs> care about us. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. Transmitting on 88.5 FM, where the valley comes alive, and uh, podcasting across iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your um, podcast from. And the website? www.talkandpower.com.au And lots more coming on that soon. Sounds good. Yeah. I'm on fire tonight. You are. You are. (laughs) Hey, Paul, tell us a bit about the company you set up, um, Automotive Events Management. We were talking about the Classic Rally before, so that was formed to to run the Classic Rally. Is that right? Yeah. That's correct. But it's, you've done a lot more events than just the Classic Rally. Tell us about some of the other motorsport events you've done over the years as well. Well, as you say, Classic Rally was the reason that Automotive Events Management was formed. Um, but it became obvious that there was plenty of room out there for enthusiasts to do other kinds of events. So over the years, I ran Classic Challenge. There was uh, the Navigation Challenge, which was navigation only. Um, I think Classic Challenge went for about 14 years, something like that. Uh, Classic Rally ran for 12 years. Uh, the Supercarna Championship was run as well. That went also for many years. In fact, that was one of the, the last events that I ran in mo- motorsport. Mm-hmm. Um, but also all kinds of other events from exhibitions to parades to... Um, interstate events, things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a certainly quite a lot uh, a long list. When you're working in that field, I guess you do become a bit of an expert in in the workings of of cams and Motorsport Australia, and also the AASA. Tell us a bit about the work you've done with both those bodies as well. Well, with CAMS initially, um, a fellow, uh, the late John Blandon, who was the person behind the Grand Prix Rally, uh, he and I sort of drew up the rules for what touring road events should be um, initially for CAMS. And then when AASA came about, I helped draft the regulations for that as well, because initially there was nothing um, and different sections of of the CAM manual reply uh, applied in different ways and didn't really work especially well because whilst there might have been motor and hill climbs and track events 
and navigation, all of which were in separate sections of the CAMS regulations, they didn't really come together necessarily in a way that worked effectively for what was termed touring road events. Mm. Um, an event like Targa Tasmania, which was in fact the first year of Targa Tasmania, was also the first year of Classic Rally here, um, that fitted quite well under rally regulations, even though it was all on tarmac. Um, but there, there was a necessity to create a new set of regulations and we put those together and I don't think there's any events run in Australia these days under those regulations anymore, but different kinds of events come and go over the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Yep. Mm. But it's obviously quite a, uh, a lot of work that you put in with uh, the... Conf- that was formerly known as Confederation of Australian Motorsport, now Motorsport Australia and the AASA. So, I mean, yeah, well, I mean, obviously... Um, Knowledge in that in that industry or running these sorts of events very important. I must say what, the work you've done there. So thank you. Yeah, <laughs> not just motorsport events, but is it? And and one of the things I think you you keep yourself busy with now is tell us classic cars and coffee. Tell us a bit about the work you do there, and also even the celebration of the motor car. Right, well, celebration of the motor car I have run since I think 1993 was the first one, and the idea of that was to create an annual event of a very upmarket kind of event, so the best of the best cars on display um, by invitation only to ensure that we've really got the best, and a display in a, a beautiful kind of atmosphere where we hold it in the grounds of the Cottesloe Civic Centre, where each car has its specific place. Uh, there's a string quartet playing music in the background and nice refreshments and just a really upmarket kind of feel. There's lots of car shows for everything and for other specific groups. There was really nothing in Australia, anything like that idea. Mm. Yeah. Um, I ran it in Adelaide a few times as well, um, but it's quite difficult doing something interstate without all the contacts and the volunteer base and all of that sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, it's been... I think it, there was a hiatus of about five years where I didn't run it, and then I started up again Yeah, okay. in 2013, and it's still going strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you asked about classic cars yeah. and coffee. That's something very different um, in that it's a very relaxed event. So a friend and I put the idea of that together, um, and making it something that's completely easy for somebody to participate in. So there's... It's a two-hour time window, theoretically, from 8.30 to 10.30. But some people come early, some leave late. That's fine. Um, Some people uh, are there for way beyond the two-hour period. That's fine as well. Um, (laughs) That sounds like us if we ever win. (laughs) There's there's no rules about you must park this brand of car together or anything like that. It's park where you feel like. Um, If people do want to park together... The, our advice to them is arrive together um, and then sort of come in in convoy and find an area where they can all park together. Sometimes we get requests from particular groups where they'd like to have the, a special display. So uh, I think in our March event, there were two groups. One was McLarens and we had 15 McLarens there. And the other 15. was 15. Yeah. That's <laughs> pretty impressive yeah. for Perth. Um, and the other was a group of people who got together with yellow-coloured cars. 
and they had about 20 yellow cars parked together, which was fantastic to see. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, was that, was that, that lady from the RAC out there? <laughs> should have been. <laughs> yes. um, so, yeah, we, we sometimes have particular things like that, or um, we've had a few featured marks. So we did something with uh, Bentley when they had a new model, the uh, latest Continental GTC convertible was being shown for the first time in Perth. Uh, the dealer was there and we also got Bentley Club along. So we had 50 Bentleys on show mm. of, of all different ages. So there's sometimes there's themes like that that go with it. Um, but generally it's a fairly relaxed kind of event. Raised a lot of money for charity with that. Mm. Um, over $100,000 has been raised by wow. that event. Yeah, it's incredible. Mm. I've been to many a Sunday at UWA, of course. Yes. yes. Um, and I, can't, I actually can't believe, I was going to say this when Simon was said, wow, to the 15 McLarens, the car scene in Perth is... I, I can't believe a lot of these cars live in Perth. We've had many conversations with friends and I going... We're in Perth. This this is here on a Sunday. We can not touch, you know, but you can look at it and go, wow, like that's tucked well, in someone's garage. One of the garage. things I like <laughs> most about that event is the variety of cars it brings out. And whilst I'm very involved in the car scene in Perth, I can often find a car that comes to that event that I've never seen before and, and an interesting, unusual car. Now, whether that's a, a Bowler Land Rover hot rod machine or whether it's a McLaren or whether it's a veteran car that I haven't seen before or a bubble car or whatever, the event just brings out all kinds of cars and of particular importance, it's the only event that I ever go to in Perth where there's a complete age range of people participating. Yep. So usually you go to a, a car display and the average age of people is in their, say, 70s. <laughs> um, yeah. Or you go to something, you know, my son who's 15 likes me to go to these, to take him to certain meets where all the cars are sort of newish, mostly Japanese kinds of cars. <laughs> and I'm the only old guy there because I'm, <laughs> I'm someone's dad. <laughs> um, but... The Classic Cars and Coffee has everybody there. So whether it's a young guy with an old Honda City that he might have spent $5,000 to buy, but it's a rarity today, yep. or whether it's an old guy in a $300,000 Rolls-Royce, doesn't matter. They all mix in in the same thing. They appreciate and admire each other's cars, and that, to me, is the greatest strength of that event. Yeah, but so some of the conversations I've had with people there, I've stopped and I appreciate a lot of bizarre things, some would argue. Yeah. And people be like, oh, do you like my car? And I've had people tell me wonderful stories that I never knew, one of them being a classic Porsche that had been around the world, I think, two or three times yeah. all up. And just he was happy that someone wanted to listen. And I'm like, yeah, bring it on. You know, like, this is great. <laughs> so It's an emerging show, but isn't it really? Because when we think about it, you know, 10 years ago, there was no such thing as the the cars and coffee deal. Mm. That's right. Now, now it's this short show. It's appealing to everyone because we're all time poor. We're all having to take kids to footy or soccer or whatever it may be. And then, so we've got the time to do that, get our cars out, quick short show, two hours, catch up with a few people, have a coffee, as you say, and, and see. It's incredible the amount of cars that we see out and about. I've seen... A hand of those of those fifteen centers, I reckon I saw four or five of them cruising together that day, and it was it was amazing, absolutely well, amazing. That, that um, you you can just pop in 
that you mentioned. When I first started running the event, a lot of people's wives would come up to me who I'd know through the car scene and they'd go, Paul, this is my kind of event. Yeah. <laughs> it's not yeah. sitting all day behind your car waiting for something to happen which won't happen. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's only two hours. It's good fun. You can have a chat with people. Um, whatever's there is interesting. You can have a coffee or something and, and then it's done and you go. Mm, yeah, you go home yeah. and do the mowing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or you go for a tour of UWA Gardens yes. and look for the peacocks. Which my, my friend never believed me. There's peacocks in w- UWA. That's There's my, peacocks. My daughter's favourite thing to do after classic cafe oh. coffee. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. A history lesson for everybody. I don't know if there'd be too many people with McLarens <laughs> and mow their own lawn. <laughs> uh, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's a magnificent event that you do there, and I, 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 I sincerely enjoy it. We're going to take a short break here, but when we come back, we'll talk about yeah, your automotive tours that you have that you have done in the past and, and looking to do once this world opens up once again. So we'll have yep. a quick chat about that right after this break. Okay, Talk and Power podcast, episode 114. We're joined in the studio, Paul Blank. And uh, we've got here Todd Brinkworth, Simon Gonzo Travellini, and I'm Nick DeCembri. Uh, 88.5 FM, where the valley comes alive, and podcasting across iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. Paul, tell us a little bit about, obviously COVID has hindered, internet, well, it stopped international travel. But your automotive tours business, I was having a look at some of the tours you offer, and they are, they are to die for. I mean, I'm, I'm, they are getting on the bucket list. So, so tell us, tell us a bit about some of them. I'm just going to click on the on the link here as well, so we can see them on the screen. So I don't know if the guys saw them before, but this one here, I mean, look at that. How awesome is that? Tell us a bit about some some of these tours that you've you've done in the past. Well, they came out of me travelling around Europe and going to do the dream car things. So mm-hmm. going to great events and great museums and collections and seeing famous car connected things. Um, and coming home and talking to friends and people about what I've been doing. And they said, oh, I wish I could go and do that. And I thought, well, I'm in the events business. Why not make an event of some tours so uh, 2005 I ran the first one and every year since then I've done at least one tour with a variety of different things in each tour I don't think the same things ever happened twice Mm. Um, and it's incorporated things from Formula One driving days to going to the Monaco Grand Prix or Le Mans or uh, important museums um, around Europe Um, we do it with a as a self-drive guided tour so the work for me is in the planning working out which hotel and restaurant and where we go each day and there's a quite detailed road book that i put together Um, and there's flexibility for people to do whatever they feel like if they don't want to do something or often what will happen is at dinner at night a few people will talk about, oh, I really want to go and see such and such a castle on the way to somewhere, and others will say, yeah, well, we should do that too. Um, but at night, they know there's a good hotel that I've 
sussed out is appropriate in every way for us, that its location is great, that we can park our nice rental cars that we've got, um, that it's good access to to get in there, get out of there, to do what we want to do the next day, etc. They know that the restaurants are going to be nice, that I've selected the right kinds of restaurants that capture the spirit of the place we're at, etc. Um, so they don't have to worry about those aspects, which they would worry about if they were just touring by themselves. Mm. And sometimes we get access to things that people can't do themselves. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's worked really well, and it's a, an awful shame that we can't go at the moment. Yeah. Um, hanging out for when you can. <laughs> yeah, Monaco, Nick. See, Monaco. Mm. So, I, 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 we we have this ongoing debate about which track... Monaco. So Monaco is a bit of a funny event. I mean, it, 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 it really produces a very exciting Grand Prix. but It's the best we, Grand Prix. It, it, it's the best in many ways, um, partly because Monaco is tiny. The whole yeah. of Monaco fits inside King's Park. Hmm. Um, and the whole place is overtaken by Grand Prix fever um, and in a way different to other Grand Prix. So... If you've got a super exotic car and you live anywhere near Monaco, and that can be five countries away, you want to take your car there at Grand Prix time. And, oh, right, and okay. you do. <laughs> and, and what you see around the whole periphery of everything that's happening on Grand Prix weekend um, is quite phenomenal. Uh, the race itself isn't necessarily the greatest thing. Um, I actually quite like going to the historic uh, yep, Grand Prix yep. at Monaco, which is usually held two weekends prior, using all the infrastructure that's there, mm -hmm. um, and that, that that's got a much more relaxed, low-key feel to it than than Formula One Grand Prix weekend. And you know, Paul, I don't understand how because those cars are worth more than the ones. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> so, yeah, and they're driven just as hard. I know. Oh, it's just yeah. it's unbelievable. They're pieces of history with such incredible value and they get yeah they get driven yeah you know yeah, yeah. But the, the event i like the most in these tours is the millimilia which is held in italy starts in brescia and does basically a big clockwise loop down to rome and back to brescia um, and it was an event that was run 1927 to 1957. So these days, in the historic rerun of it, they limit it to the same cars. So basically a car which was in it originally can go in it today for the same model. And in fact, usually the 50 or 60 cars that actually competed in the original Millimilia in it. And while it's a road event and they theoretically follow road regulations, it is Italy. Yeah. <laughs> so so um, they really, yeah, they go for it. And there's a fantastic array of, yeah, <laughs> hundreds of fabulous cars blasting around the roads with big support from manufacturers. So companies like Mercedes-Benz send their best cars from their collection. And oh, watching things crazy. like that out is just amazing. Yeah. Um, I went with somebody once on one of my tours who had been a cam steward in Perth and he was asking me, oh, how far back are the barriers and how close can you get to what's going on? I said, if you want to sit with, on the curb with your feet on the road, that'll be all right. This is Italy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. But that's got an amazing feel to it. And I've probably been, I think, seven or eight times to it and eager to go back every year. That, that's just, to me, that's the best car event in the world. Mm. Do, do you think we live in the nanny 
not state, country. Absolutely, no question <laughs> yeah. about it. I, I just, you know, you read about Nürburgring and, and you just think, <laughs> you could just go there and die and pay your 20 euros or whatever. Yeah. No one seems yeah. to... Well, I've taken some of my tours to Nürburgring and some people have hired cars from the various companies that provide them. Um, it's risky. Uh, <laughs> yep. I've, I've seen some people come off, luckily not people from my tours, but some cars hit the barriers and things like that. Um, but it's pretty unique opportunity. Yes, I, I went there actually 10 years ago, pretty much this month, and uh, it was an experience. I Did you drive it? Yeah. I, uh, 20, 22 laps over two days. Wow. In what car? Uh, a Golf... No, sorry, uh, Volkswagen Sirocco. Okay, good. But I was quite fortunate to go with uh, Franz. Um, oh, yes. And uh, he had a Beamer that I went in for a lap with him, and that was quite an experience, Franz driving around the Nürburgring. And also got a lap with this very famous motoring journalist by a pure fluke, like by just being an Aussie in a car park. He heard, he heard an Aussie ox- accent and started talking about tin tops, about supercars, and went, oh, you're from Australia, you know about these, right? And... <laughs> Jump in the car with me, have a chat, and the rest is history. So fantastic, yeah. But well, well question without notice: Where does Goodwood, the festival of speed that is, where does that fit in, in in your, in your list? Um, it, it's an event, oddly, that I haven't been to, oh, okay. um, and would like to go very much. Um, it's a very high-profile event. Um, someday I'll get there. Um, I've been to Goodwood itself a couple of times. Um, but not to one of their major events. The the calibre of the cars is, um, you know, amazing, but they're not doing what they do at Monaco. (laughs) Yeah, and I I think the mix of cars as well is quite... quite, (laughs) By the sounds of it at the Miller Milieu. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's... Yeah, when I looked at those tours, I thought, yeah, this is is really exciting stuff. And uh, I don't know how you find the time, Paul, really, to be honest with you, organising all this sort of stuff and and doing your day-to-day business in Broken as well. It's, It's incredible what you do. Well, the, the tours are really the sorts of things that I would most like to do if I was going to do that. Yeah. Um, and when the tour itself's happening, as I said before, the work for me is in the planning. When the tour's on, it's me enjoying myself as a motoring enthusiast mm. and while I'm looking after people, um, if I've done my pre-planning properly, that's pretty straightforward. Yeah, um, yeah, no, certainly, certainly. It's probably an opportune time now. We'll take a short break because when we get back, we're going to talk more about um, your journalism work, what you what you've been doing with a number of car magazines, and uh, and um, yeah, we'll have a bit of a chat about that, and then some of the cars you've owned as well. Probably you know everyone listening wants to know some of the cars you've owned in the past. So we'll take a short break here, and we'll be back with more right after this. Okay, episode 114 of the Talk and Power podcast, and we've got in the studio Paul Blank. All right, Paul, as we were saying just before the break, um, you also do a fair bit of work, um, journalist work, um, unique cars in Australia, classic and sports car UK, Australian classic car, and uh, you're also the motoring editor for Scoop magazine. So that's that's a big one there. Tell us your work there, and 
Okay, first tell us about your work there and then I'll ask you my second part of my question. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I don't do a lot of writing these days, but for about 10 years I, I really concentrated on that and the, the publications that you mentioned, I was regular contributor to all of those. Um, the, I think the last issue of Classic and Sports Car had an article that I wrote in it. Um, that's probably the first thing for five or six years that they've published. Um, I'm motoring editor for Medicus magazine, which is the AMA magazine, and there's not a lot more that I do in motor writing at the moment. That's incredible. So the AMA have their own uh, has a, has a motoring section in there. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, that's that's fair enough. That's uh, it's so. How does people like ourselves get a get a gig in a in a, in a journo's role? How do we? It's, I guess, much more difficult these days than it used to be because um, the publishing world has changed dramatically in the last 10 mm. years. Uh, there's less and less mastheads. A lot of uh, magazines have been combined by their publishers. Uh, a lot have been closed down. Um, the budgets for publications have been cut back so drastically that they just don't have the room to have freelancers work mm. as even as a possibility so it's really changed enormously go into a news agent today and see how many car magazines are on the shelf mm. and it'll be a quarter of what it was 10 years ago yeah yeah, yeah. I, I can vouch for that that's yeah. um the other day i was i was at the news agent trying to find something inspiring and you know there was a handful of, uh, of yeah. magazines i mean i the old ones that I would traditionally see, like Carcraft and Hot Rod magazine, they're, they're not even available anymore mm. in Australia. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> it is but sad. I, is I think a lot of that's because uh, the online side of it has has grown. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of online, we'll we'll jump around a little bit <coughs> here, but we'll talk about your website, caropinion.com or classicrally.com.au as well. You read a fair bit about your, your stuff there. Tell us a bit about that website. Um, well, I decided to create caropinion.com.au about probably five years ago. Um, as somewhere where I could collate all the different sorts of things that I do um, and somewhere to keep a record of all the different road tests of new cars mm -hmm. that I've done over the years. Um, about events coming up, um, probably the page which gets the most interest is the marketplace page of yep. classic cars for sale. Um, it covers my tours and other events and car museums around the world, all sorts of things like that. It's a quite a comprehensive website, and to be honest with you, I use this and, and Facebook to do most of my research. So it's okay. a credit to yourself because it's everything okay. is 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 there, and I found it. Very, uh, very, very good website, and um, hats off to you, Paul. I think it's magnificent. When you're, as a journo, as you are, part of the gig is test driving cars, so I'm sure you have an extensive list, but just give us your top five, not of your cars, <laughs> but of the top five. It can be track or street, doesn't have to be, can be yeah, five I'd... track or... <laughs> Tell us, give us your top five well, that you've driven over your career. People ask me this sort of question sometimes, and... and the cars that have left the greatest impressions on me are quite different to each other and probably quite different to to what I would drive necessarily given my choice. But Ferrari F40 has to be right up there. Mm -hmm. I've been lucky enough to drive three of them. Amazing car. Wow. A uh, very sort of old tech supercar um, <laughs> in those old-fashioned twin turbos. Chain. And, 
yeah. <laughs> trying to open the door. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you virtually you accelerate hard and you go three, two, one, go before the turbos cut in. <laughs> but fantastic, it's like thrilling Todd's car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're fabulous. Um, another one of the greats that I've driven was a 1925 Bugatti Type 35 Grand Prix car. Not much to it. Very spindly little thing with no doors, no roof, no windscreen. Supercharged. Not, not to it. Uh, that one was. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, tiny, that, tiny little footwell, and you had to wear sort of like ballet shoes virtually. <laughs> but the, but the owner had for it with no no soles on the side of the shoe. Did it feel like you were driving on ice constantly? Um, <laughs> not quite. I wasn't driving it that hard. But, but oddly enough, I've driven a lot of vintage cars, and to me, most of them is like you're just working a machine, and I don't get a lot of pleasure from the really vintage stuff, but that Bugatti was thrilling. Yeah, it was really something special. Mm. Um, another one in my top five would be a lightweight E-Type Jag. Okay. Yep. Jaguar yep. built 12 of those. Um, this one was bought new by Bob Jane. He won the Australian Sports Car Championship in it, raced it a bit more, and then basically put it aside. Um, many years later, Perth collector Peter Briggs bought it. Was part of his collection. It was rarely in his museum, but most often just in his garage at home. I was lucky enough one day to be in there talking, which cars do you like out of the collection? I said, really, I think the lightweight E-Type because it's got such a special history and such rarity and the keys were thrown to me and say, take it for a spin. Oh, wow. Um, so that was pretty fabulous car. Um, I drove a little three-wheel Messerschmitt bubble car oh, many yeah. years ago, and that was really something. Yeah. They've got a handlebar steering, very sort of twitchy steering on their <laughs> tiny little wheelbarrow tyres, um, and you really learn a different technique of driving for something like that, not just that you have to go around potholes instead of straddle them. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, you would get lost in a pothole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you don't want the back wheel dropping into it. You've straddled the front wheels yeah. but yeah that was a great little thing you know one cylinder engine i think they're 197 cc uh, but really good fun mm. um and you know motoring's there to have fun that's right yeah 100 percent. and of newish vehicles the one that impressed me recently was a renault twizzy which is a tiny little electric car that renault makes um and i rode in one in paris and then um Renault Australia brought one out for car shows and things like that, which will either be or might have already been destroyed or or pulled to bits because it can't be licensed in Australia. But it's a two seats, one behind the other, um, no side windows, optional doors, um, very very lightweight plastic electric car. Optional but, doors, but it, and, and the doors swing up like a Lamborghini. This, this <laughs> sounds like something Virgin Airlines would release. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, very lightweight, um, and and to me, what electric cars should be, just a little uh, city runaround vehicle, like um, the Sinclair. Um, sort of, but a, a lot more sophisticated. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I don't think an electric car should be a giant sled full of batteries and, and performing tricks. It should just be able to be a little runaround that you're not, you, that you don't have great expectations of. Like, 
you're not going to try and drive to Albany in a Renault Twizy. You probably <laughs> could. Um, and while Tesla owners need to prove to everybody that you can drive to Albany... <laughs> Um, but you can't. You can't, yeah. <laughs> Shout out to our listeners that own Teslas. We do have a few now. So, yeah. <laughs> On that note, Paul, yeah. the, the whole electric car thing, do you foresee the day that we will no longer be able to buy petrol and, and what effect will that have on the classic car world? Um, I don't think that that would happen because petrol runs out. I think what will happen is there'll be so much pressure on governments to make it hard to be the owner of a traditional car as we see today or a classic car that there'll be lots of extra taxes and costs and things imposed on ownership of such cars in different ways and that can be taxes on petrol on road usage etc that that pressure will ultimately benefit electric car ownership so much that it'll sort of uh, just make ownership of of a classic car more difficult but petrol will always be available and people will always be able to use their old-fashioned cars Um, that's sort of the future that I see Mm. in it there's a lot of political pressure being applied the the irony is that we're so focused on you know the mums and dads with their runabouts that probably use 50 litres worth of fuel every every week. Uh, yet we allow mining machines that have no catalytic <laughs> converters, no particular filters, nothing. They just pump columns of black soot out. And, and we have guys like us that openly admit that their mines burn 700 800 million liters of diesel a year and he would be the smallest of the miners in the iron ore or compared to um, but you never hear anyone talk about them you never hear or well, maybe we should do something or even the irony of of uh you know we're, we're trying to move forward and, and be more responsible yet we use ships that burn on on bunker uh, oil yeah. which is basically tar <laughs> that also shoot out columns of, of, of uh, soot and they carry the iron ore from australia to china and then bring it back as steel yeah, you the, know the man, the man in the street doesn't see a ship or a mining company but they see a smoky old car and think that that's destroying the environment. Yeah, well, it's not. The the steak that you just ate probably destroyed (laughs) the environment more. Yes, yes. (laughs) The the carbon footprint of production of an electric car is the equivalent of five years of use of an already produced petrol-powered car. Yep, yep. And and the, the truth is that keeping the old classics going is being more environmentally friendly. Absolutely. And yeah. and those cars, ironically, there's no plastic on them. Mm. So they were completely <laughs> biodegradable. Yeah. They were way ahead of the curve in the, in the 20s and 30s than yeah. now. Mm. I, I think there's another generation to go in electric cars before they make real-world sense, not just political expediency sense. Yeah. We're not allowed to say anything about that on on the radio station. <laughs> I get banned every time. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. 
No, it's a, it's um, we, we agree a hundred percent. I think we did the we did the maths. Well, you did the maths not that long ago about the electric vehicle. Yeah, we took it, yeah. the 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 most efficient electric and petrol car that were comparable, and yeah, it just it doesn't work. The reality is that the electricity. Uh, the, the CO2 emissions from producing the electricity yeah. and it's different in each state and we did a, a, a very vast comparison of every mm. state and th there isn't one where you're actually in front. Mm. I, I think when uh, hydrogen cell um, electric cars come on stream eventually, that's a much better answer than what we've seen today. Yeah. yeah. No. Toyota, I, I believe, is spending a lot of yes. money on the hydrogen cell that's development. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so did we cover five? I know I cut you off there. It was, yes. <laughs> that was yeah, all awesome. five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a magnificent five. Speaking of cars, we, we'll take, we will take a short break here and we'll be back with uh, more from Paul. And we're going to talk about some of the cars he's owned over the years himself uh, right after the break. Okay, Talking Power Podcast, episode 114, and we've got Paul Blank in the studio, also joined co-host Todd Brinkworth, Simon Gonzo-Travellini, and I'm Nick DiCembri. Transmitting on 88.5 FM, where the valley comes alive. You have to stay tuned for Carlos, Captain Carlos, straight after us at 10 o'clock uh, with his community chats. So, big cheerio to Carlos, and uh, also say hello to Minot Bob, who always introduced us as well, so great to have Great to be in the middle of Midnight Bob and Captain Carlos. Paul. That sounded bad. <laughs> <laughs> didn't sound right, did it? <laughs> anyway. Hey, Paul, look, we've spoken about some of the cars you've driven over the years. Um, but tell us some of the cars you've owned. You have a list here on your website. I was... I don't reckon it's the full list because I didn't see any Fords in there. So, so. <laughs> listen, a Di Tommaso is a Ford, all okay, right? Yeah, all right. Oh, yeah. Engine, yeah. <laughs> but talk us through that list. It's it's quite a it's quite a, a a wide list. Well, one of the things that I have tried to do in my sort of motoring life is to experience different kinds of cars. Um, and to proper, properly experience them, not just to drive around the block or, or a test drive, that sort of thing, but to really get the feel of ownership and living with a particular kind of car. Mm. Um, and, I'm and glad that you said own, that living with, because <laughs> yeah. it is a lot like that, isn't it? Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> yes, um, and, and there's cars that I've bought which I've regretted buying, <laughs> and... But that's the way you learn about what's good and what's not good and what you like and don't like. Um, and many of them have been extreme sorts of cars. You know, I, I always wanted to know what it was like to have a full-size American car. I'd had a Studebaker when I was quite young, but that's the size of a Holden or Ford of its era. Um, so the opportunity came up and I bought a 1973 Cadillac Coupe de Ville which is as big as a house. It was bigger than a Perth parking spot. Wow. Um, yeah. And my intention with it wasn't just to drive it now and then, but to really use it properly. So it was my everyday car. Um, I competed in historic motorsport events with it, which normally you wouldn't do in a Cadillac, no. but it was actually brilliant for that. <laughs> I, I did the Grand Prix rally in it. I did some of the Round the Houses historic events in it. Um, and had huge fun with it, far beyond what I expected, and I owned it for 12 years. 
There's other cars that I've had for six months because they've disappointed me, but I've mm. still learnt and experienced what that car is like. And if the answer is not for me, well, that's okay. Move on to something, something different. I, I remember a lot of these cars as I was growing up. I yeah. remember the Citroen, the the light burn. Yeah, uh, that was a cute. Cool the car. worst car ever made, but <laughs> yeah, made but it's, in Australia. It, it's the idiosyncrasies that make it special. Yeah, well, it only had idiosyncrasies. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, I enjoyed the variety of it. So favourite, favourite? Um, pro- if there was one favourite, it was probably a Citroen DS that I had. And I've had a few DSs over the years, but... There was one particular one, a 1969 model with hydraulic gear change, and that, that was just a magic car, one that they got very right. Biggest lemon? Biggest lemon, probably an Audi 100 wagon that I had. Which <laughs> <laughs> was just, just from that era in the 80s where cars were really plasticky inside and out, and the quality, I mean, the design was great. That was the one with the first car with the flush fitting windows. And the idea of it really appealed to me, but the uh, the way it was the execution, built, yes, the execution <laughs> left something to be desired. The is one it, that got away, Paul. The one that got away. No, there's not one. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I, I wish I could have kept quite a lot of the cars I've had, but you, you know, you can't afford to keep everything, and you know, something's got to make way for the next thing. And you know, the, there's a few that I really loved. Um, the Lancia. Um, I really enjoyed that, but I don't mind that I had it for about five years and that I no longer have it. Okay. Uh, it Fulvia Coupe. It was a beautiful car, fabulous engineering, um, but five years was enough with that one. Um, We're looking at some of the cars that you're referring to here on the screen. So, if you, again, go back to the YouTube video. If, you, if you're listening to us on the radio or on as a podcast, go back and watch our YouTube video. You can see some of the cars that we're referring to here, actually. And they're, they're beautiful cars. That, the Di Tommaso's, you can't buy them anymore now. They're, no. just, they're, they're completely outside of the realm of normal people. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's certain cars that I've had which, um, by today's standards, I could never afford. I mean, the, the Alpha Montreal, yeah. yep. they were sort of twenty-five dollars to $30,000 for 20 years, and now they're $150,000. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yep. Yeah, beautiful car, but mm. beautiful car. Yeah. Mm. No, it's a magnificent list of, of vehicles there, Paul. And uh, yeah, as I said, if you're watching the video, you go back or go, head to your website. And you can see them there. That's where we're reviewing them under the About Us section. And uh, you can see the cars there. The Facel Vega would be another one that would be six figures now, yeah? Oh, yes. Big, big dollars today. In fact, um, my old car, which is you can see a photo of there, um, has since been completely restored, and I'm selling it for the owner now. Um, it's two hundred and sixty-five thousand yeah. dollars. Wow! Beautiful car, bud. Beautiful Magnificent. car. Magnificent. Yeah. The Honda. The Honda Z three sixty. I always thought they were a fabulous piece of micro car styling with um, frameless windows and pillarless. Yeah, I always loved the back window. Yeah, the, the, the TV screen <laughs> rear window. <laughs> But the uh, 9,000 RPM redline, oh, twin wow. carburetors for yeah. two cylinders, that absolute scream. Essentially a motorcycle engine, no way. Well, similar, <laughs> but that, I mean, that's a water-cooled yeah. design. Um, the early ones were actually air-cooled. air-cooled. Yeah. Mm. Uh, that was great fun, that car. Well, there's, I'd never see them anymore. They must be worth a fortune now. Uh, 
probably not a fortune. I don't know if there's any good ones left in Perth. Um, mine's sitting in the country, sort of uh, waiting to be restored one day. That it's no longer mine, but uh, I had it for over 20 years. Um, and it was great fun, again, in a very different way to everyday transport. Yeah. Certainly is. I mean, it is a... <laughs> That that I do recall seeing them, but yeah, you don't, you just don't see those, those anymore. But that no. rear windscreen, wind, was, oh, yeah, it, was, <laughs> it was arguably the car they should have used in Wayne's World. <laughs> True, yeah. they should have actually. Look, Paul, we we talked about moving forwards. Um, the car scene in, in WA is buoyant, but do you feel the next generation of enthusiasts? Do you reckon they'll have the same passion for the, for those marquees from an era gone by? Um, I think so, but the the era that people are fascinated by always moves with each generation. Mm. So the cars of the 1920s and 30s, the people that really love those cars in big numbers, uh, those people are now diminishing. You know, they're people in their 80s, 90s or no longer with us. So it, in part that keeps the value of those old cars quite low because there's not much demand. And I think people like most the cars which they were impressed by when they started liking cars. Yeah, now for most yeah. people that's in their teen years somewhere. So you look at people, my son's 15 years old, and I say, well, what cars does he really like now? He likes... R32s. <laughs> well, R34s. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, cars like that or late model RX-7s and that, that sort of thing. That's what excites him. But in time, when, you know, when he's 40, they're going to be very old cars. Yeah. And there won't be many of them left. And those which are left, enthusiasts will have and will love. Um, but the same thing, you know, might be an early MX-5. But in saying that, that there are, like... You know that that group of cars that you mentioned, the Series Six, to me, yep. that that shape, that's timeless. Absolutely, that's a, that was a classic yeah. from the day it rolled out of the showroom. Yeah. And they're, they're, that category of cars is really the only group of classic cars which has seen an increase in value that's notable in the last couple of years, where others have remained fairly static and generally going up slightly, but but not in the dramatic way that the Japanese cars of that era have. But then, then you know, something that we've discussed with with um, uh, I've forgotten his name now from Shannon's. Um, oh, James. 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 Yeah. Sorry, apologies, James. Um, there are cars that will always be, you know, like a Lamborghini Miura or the, yes. the classic mm. um, Contage or you know, two fifty GDO. Or, yep. You know, they will always be sought after. Yeah. I believe because um, there's so few of them. Yes, um, and there's increasing numbers of people in the world and of people with money. So countries like, say, India, which 30 years ago might have only had a few millionaires, has hundreds of millionaires yeah. today, and some of them will develop interest in classic cars. If there's only 200 good Lamborghini Miras left in the world, they've got to be spread out further. Yeah. Mm, so yeah. you're quite right. There will always be demand for certain rare cars like that. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Paul, well, look, we've had a great interview here, but for people that want to know a little bit more, tell us where can they find more information? There was, we just mentioned caropinion.com.au. That's probably the best place for people yeah. to go because it covers the most. Yep. Yeah. 
Also, just want to plug the website classiccarsandcoffee.com as well. Yes. I should head there because that, yeah. that's quite a good website as well and it's got all the, the upcoming dates as well. And celebration.org.au as well. That's for the celebration yes. of the motor car as well. So, yeah, or head to caropinion.com.au. Also on Facebook, Interesting Cars of Perth. I must, it's up in my news feed. So, to be up in my news feed, we need to explain. You've obviously got to be updating it, putting new material on there all the time. So, tell us a bit about that as well. Facebook, Interesting Cars of Perth. All right. I, I created that about a year and a half ago, and it's going really strongly. We've got about 8,000 followers at the moment, mm-hmm. and it, it's rapidly growing. Um, it takes a lot of curation, and I'm on there at least once a day checking things and removing inappropriate sorts of posts and adding, <laughs> adding posts but, but I believe it's necessary to do that to keep the quality of it up um, and I get a lot of feedback from people saying it is good quality and that they enjoy the fact that the idiots that might get onto somewhere else don't remain published there forever um, there's a lot of historical information but all Perth car related so it might be an old ad from the 1930s mm. or pictures of an event that happened in the 1960s or something like that but a lot of it is just interesting cars that people see around the streets or hidden away in garages there's a lot of treasure in Perth and always has been um, and it seems to have captured people's imaginations mm, yeah no, most certainly most certainly someone actually put a photo of my car on there once actually I was, <laughs> I was taking the family out for a spin and someone uh, snapped it and they said check this out and, I was, and someone actually and, saw it and tagged me and said hey Nick check this out and, and admin didn't remove it I mean, it, didn't bother, it, didn't, it didn't bother me I, I wasn't I wasn't fussed by that it was on the it was actually a bit of an honor actually to be honest yeah. so yeah no it's uh, I, I think it's a I'm always going there but as i said it's always on the top of my news feed so you must Good. be doing something well there so Excellent. yeah no really appreciate that okay paul well look um thanks for coming in thanks for joining us in the on the podcast we really enjoyed it. i i really pleasure. enjoyed this uh this interview and um yeah look i mean yep we'll catch up with you i reckon in a, you know down the road one, at yeah, some I'll stage we'll be get happy back to in. come back again yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, we can have a specialised um, podcast on a particular brand of car. So that I'm, I'm sure that uh, there'll be an event that we'll uh, be attending at some stage or another. Most definitely, yeah. I know yeah. COVID's mixed everything up a little bit, but yeah. um, things have eventually got to go back to normal. Yeah, mm. yeah. No, you're yeah. very welcome to come to any of the events I'm involved with mm. and do something from there. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. that'd be great. Oh, awesome. Good. All right, guys, thanks for coming in as well. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, Simon. And uh, we'll catch you in a couple of weeks' time. All, All right. right. Take care. See you. Falcon Power, your motorsport and motoring radio show. Now on 88.5 FM, the valley comes alive. And podcasting across iTunes and talkandpower.com.au.